Okay, this is another edition of Musical Explorations. This is your host, Ted Peterson, and we're still exploring the ramifications of different styles of music and what composers have used to create their works. For string orchestra and I submitted it to our symphony and Michael Novak, music director, and he said that they didn't think the orchestra could perform it. So it led me to an interesting thing. Um, what can our orchestra perform? What, what kind of work would our orchestra do, if a contemporary work of a composer? What, what, would, would they, what would they be involved with? What would they find interesting? We've looked over the past three weeks at devices composers have used to compose pieces in different styles. We find ways to make their works more interesting musically, you know, like adding, adding the, the uh, uh, modes into pieces and, and different types of scales, artificial scales, those type of things. And uh, also to enhance a personal style. They were very interested in establishing a voice, their own voice. And we briefly covered the difference between personal style and social style. We know that social style can be influenced by, well, I don't know, social factors like uh, political mood, religious expectations. If you're working for the Catholic Church or the Methodist or somebody, uh, you're going to be writing different kinds of music than you would be if you're writing for uh, the Gay Men's Chorus of San Francisco. Um, possibly. I mean, the Gay Men's Chorus can perform anything, but they, would, they wouldn't necessarily want you to write them a religious-oriented piece. And, uh, and the society existing where the time, where, where the music that would exist in New York and exist in San Francisco is, is far more experimental overall than music that exists in, in San Luis Obispo. So composers work within social styles. Uh, there are social styles that go on. Right now we're under the, the sway of uh, minimalism, and that's very popular right now, and, and the reverse of tonality. We saw it happen slowly as composers burned out on the uh, atonal and the abstract experiments, how tonality has been creeping its way back in, but in a different guise. So, if a there's a thing about composers. Composers have always been experimental, even in Mozart and Beethoven's time, uh, and even before that. Composers always are looking for new ways to do things. But if a composer gets too far out, if his own personal style becomes too disassociated from the social style around him, he risks being completely ignored. Maybe maybe he would be discovered later, maybe not. We don't know that. that when most, for most of the history of our music, it's been men have been composers. It was a job like anything else, and women weren't singers in churches. They weren't uh, actors on stage. Now, in our time, that's not the same. We do have lots of women composers, and We'll look at those, the, the women composers and sample some of their works and see where they fit into the scope of all this stuff. But our little San Luis Obispo Symphony would be an organization that should support new music. They have no plans to do so. And, and I don't know if they have any, anybody on their board has a vision 
uh, to expand the orchestra that way. I mean, they did it in the past. They have performed contemporary things in the past. Uh, they did Ives, but Ives finally is a dead person and, and uh, uh, great music, but it's, it's still in the Ives is kind of now becoming part of the general repertory in some ways in this country. A lot in, in uh, China. They love Ives over in China, more so than we like him here. And that's an interesting thing. So we have a, a, an organization. They, they have no, like I said, they have no plans as far as I know. And it's kind of a sad commentary. You know, the, uh, the small orchestra should be promoting music of our time. If you go to a rock club, you go to a popular music place, they don't play only oldies. We, we do a little bit up here. We tend to be a revivalist kind of organization up here, even musically. But still, you want to hear latest stuff. Sometimes you want to hear historical perspective, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. However, to dote your whole time and spend your whole time being a historical reenactment thing is kind of like being a Civil War buff. It, it's, it's interesting, and it's maybe historically accurate, but it puts you in a niche that you still exist. We don't live in the times that Mozart, Beethoven, and uh, Rachmaninoff, uh, even Rachmaninoff and, and uh, Mahler, we don't live in those times anymore. We certainly don't live in the times of Bach. It's a completely different social structure, completely different time. Yet, we perform his music all the time. It's great music, but it's not the only music. Music is evolving. We're still producing great composers, and composers are still doing great things with sound. So it's, it's a very sad commentary that we have this orchestra, and they don't are not involved at, at all in promoting contemporary composers. They're not interested, and it, it's very strange. And I, I've talked with Mike Novak about it, and I don't know if, if he's interested in doing it or pursuing it, or if he wants to, I don't know what the board structure is, and... Um, everything I've ever submitted around here to any group has been ignored. So, you know, well, maybe I'm just a bad composer. Oh, well, Ted's a bad composer, so we won't perform any of his stuff. However, every place else in the world I send it, people like it. So go figure that, you know. So what will happen with our orchestra, of course, is it's not musically important. Okay, we went to Carnegie Hall and we played in Carnegie Hall, but that's a vanity thing. That's like publishing your own book and thinking you're a world's best-selling author. It's not the same. It's nice that they went, they do some interesting things, they played some nice music, but in, in, the, in the ultimate reality, who cares? What changed? Nothing. It was a, it was, what changed musically? Nothing. Well, it, was a, it was an interesting trip. I'm sure people had fun and our, our little town uh, comported themselves well and, and, and showed themselves to be capable musicians, but it's a typical small orchestra. So what is accomplished with something like that? Now, had they gone to Carnegie Hall and premiered two new works of living composers, something would have been said. Something would have been done there. That would be different. It would be interesting. And that's what our orchestra should be doing. No, they could play. The, they want to play Mozart, play Mozart. But here, we're premiering this work by this guy, and they're playing it, and they would get much more attention from that than they would from a knockout stellar performance of Mozart. After all, there are people and orchestras who specialize in Mozart, and they play all the time. Okay, so no, it doesn't matter how well we play the Hafner or Jupiter Symphony. It doesn't matter. It, it matters not. It's, it's fun. It'd be a nice evening. You take your date. Take your person out, you go see the symphony, it was a nice performance, but who cares? It's not contemporary, it's not current 
in our lives. It doesn't reflect anything that's going on in our lives right now. So it's incumbent on smaller and community orchestras like ours to cultivate composers and include new music in their repertory. They've got to do it. If they don't, it shows a total lack of vision. Complete. It's a complete and total lack of vision. It's like saying, we're going to pander to people who only want to hear Mozart. Now, if, if these are the people that are supporting our symphony, maybe they better take their money and do something more interesting with it. I don't know that there, we have a beautiful performing center here. And we have uh, capable players. Our players are not, they're not, they're not all total professional, but they're good. They are good players. We have good players here. Mike is a decent conductor. He's good. He's, he's got his chops. He widows down and works in Hollywood. He conducts great movies. His movie scores. These are complex things that are difficult to conduct. He puts them together very fast. So he could conduct any of this stuff, but you have to have the will to do it. You have to want to go out there and expose this type of music and have fun with it. Some of it's going to be great. Some of it's going to be on the trash heap of history. But you can't stay safe all your life and only go with what's proven. You've got to take risk and take chances. And artists have done that all their lives. When they don't, the, the organizations that don't stay current eventually lose credibility with anybody. Well, we can have a, a the, we now have the Mosaic Festival. Wasn't that what in the world was the Mozart Festival? We had some good performances. What's well, changed? The name has changed. I don't know anything contemporary that's done on that festival. Nothing, nothing. Maybe a group will come up with one piece, but there's no drive. There's, they don't hire somebody to say you're going to put the Fringe Festival on. I want to get the most interesting, exciting, avant-garde music you can get and bring it up here. We could do that. But we don't, because there's no vision. And anybody who has a vision, they're ignored. So without support and opportunity, music we now have, they're playing all this music from these composers. Had they not had support and had some kind of ability to get their music out there, we would not have it today. So they, they're playing music that the composers that have gone through a process where there was support for it. There used to be a lot of people with money. Would, they valued commissioning works. They valued paying people to do music. I mean, the Goldberg Variations, we would not have those had not a guy had insomnia and hired Bach to come in and improvise for him to put him to sleep. We wouldn't have him. So with support, uh, it's not a commission like a big commission, but times were different then. Composers worked for the church, like Bach worked for five of them. Uh, and he also well, took commissions. Uh, we have the Brandenburg Concertos because the Brandenburgs commissioned those works from Bach, and it's happened all the way. We had uh, Tchaikovsky would have been almost an unknown uh, composer had it not been for Madame Meck, who uh, uh, supported him and sponsored him and did all his stuff. So without support and opportunity, music that we now is our common stuff, our orchestra plays it all the time, wouldn't have existed. So... Let's take a look at some of the musical systems we've looked at, some of the things we've explored, and examples, and see what, what would our symphony do? What could they do? We're going to give them some a primer here on, on works they could perform uh, if they had the mind to perform contemporary stuff. Some of it will be from older composers that uh, obviously have passed on. Some are still alive. Um, um, Carter, uh, Elliot Carter, and uh, and George Crumb. John Cage, of course, is dead. I don't think 
we have any uh, chance that our orchestra would perform John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds and call themselves contemporary. We're doing contemporary things. I just don't think they would do. They're, they're not that cynical. That's like spitting in the face of every composer who was working today and, and, and writing music. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, of course, uh, a contemporary thing. It's conceptually interesting. But it's not music, it's silence. And I don't think, even as cynical as, as our orchestra might be, I don't think they would uh, call that, we're contemporary, we're doing contemporary music. Look, we perform silence. You know. Besides, the work was written in 47. Hardly contemporary. So we could stage radio music, that would be an interesting one, because uh, you give every orchestra an AM radio, or orchestra member an AM radio, and there's a conductor, and then uh, orchestra players, instead of playing their instruments, adjust the, the volume and the tuning dial on the radio per cue. And, it, and, it, and the resultant big noise is what the radio music piece is. But I don't think we're going to do that one either. But let's hear what it sounds like. <laughs> Now, what is it? It's 12 radios. Orchestra members get them, and they have a cues. A turn the tuning dial here to this number, turn the volume up a quarter, turn it down, do this, and then a conductor conducts it, and it uh, you do these on cue, just like you would play your instrument. And instead of a note, it has a little symbol for the dial, and you turn it. And I performed the thing two times, so it's fun. It's a fun piece, but it was written in 1951. So is that contemporary? I, I don't know. Is it contemporary only because of the concept? And every time you play it, it's going to sound different. I mean, if we play it here, depending on what's on the radios, you're going to hear what it is. If there's a lot of, if it's in a, a very rural place where there's not a lot of stations, you're going to hear a lot of static uh, because it's AM. Uh, FM radios, it doesn't work because FM kind of just has quiet moments between. It's not the staticky of the old uh, A7. So they're probably not going to do radio music, and we've, we've heard what it sounds like. So, uh, but we might hear a work by American composer Elliot Carter. And let's see if we can find something that's small enough or not. I'll see what we can find uh, for, from Elliot Carter. I have lots of Carter. <laughs>
That was from Carter, Elliot Carter's Concerto for Orchestra, written in 1969. I actually got to sit in on that piece in the 70s when uh, it was done uh, by the L.A. Phil and, and had the score, and I got to go through it. Well, made it conducted. It was really an experience. But we don't have the forces to do the Concerto for Orchestra. We just don't. Uh, it takes a huge orchestra and, uh, and an absolutely fantastic pianist. It's a very difficult part to play. But we do have other stuff. In 2010, Carter wrote a piece called Conversations, and it's for chamber orchestra, percussion, and piano. So let's hear what that sounds like. Our orchestra might be able to do this. abstract, yes, atonal parts, but it still has a certain charm. There's something to it there that is, is refreshing. And so it shows you that regardless of what we've done with minimalism, uh, Carter isn't dead. Um, we have a couple other art, uh, Carter works we could do too, smaller works, uh, not necessarily for orchestra. There's one called Reflections. It's one's premiered. It's never been... Uh, performed. I heard a, uh, a recording of it uh, one time, and I'm no, I didn't get a copy of it, but uh, nobody's put it out on record, uh, unfortunately, but um, maybe it could be found somewhere. So we have composers working in all types of different styles. What other composers can we sample? Well, what would our little orchestra do here? Uh, and, and Carter, obviously, in that piece, used a, a, his own tone row technique. It wasn't an abstraction of Schoenberg, but it was his own way of working with tones and then expanding them out over the orchestra and, and writing pieces like that. And they're very good. So uh, what does, uh, we have a, right down here, we have the Green Umbrella in Los Angeles. Green Umbrella is their contemporary arm. It's the subgroup of the fill. Los Angeles Philharmonic, and they put on contemporary music. Now, we should do this with our little orchestra. We should get some members who have an interest in performing contemporary pieces, just chamber pieces. They don't have to be big orchestra, full orchestra pieces, but up to, let's say, 12 instruments, maybe 13 instruments, and, uh, or 18, 19 instruments, however many we can get, and, uh, and, and two times a season uh, we put on a contemporary concert. We do it same place, same hall, same everything, and we would start drawing people. People would come, even if we use a different venue, it would still work out. We don't have to use the performing arts center. We could use a, a rehearsal hall somewhere or a church or something like that. But who's the director of that? John Adams. So let's play something that uh, John Adams does. Maybe our orchestra can handle that. 
Hey, that's an excerpt from John Adams, Short Ride in a Fast Machine. That actually was Michael Tilson Thomas and the San Francisco Philharmonic. Interesting, interesting work. But what if we want some abstraction? We don't want minimalism. We want some abstractions. Let's, uh, we have a couple of guys that are, are working today. Obviously, Elliot Carter. We could get some abstraction with him. But we have uh, uh, John Harbison. Let's hear what he's doing. What about contemporary American composer Stephen Stuckey? He's now working on the East Coast, and this is a sample of his piece called Radical Light, certainly within the grasp of our orchestra. I can go on and find hundreds of composers that are working. Uh, some are well-known, some are not well-known, some are, are, are interesting, and some are, are not interesting, we don't know. But, but Stuckey has a very interesting style, it tends to be long, drawn-out pieces, those oozy kind of pieces like this, but his, his pieces tend to be rather abstract in a tonal sense. I mean, it's not that he's completely abstract, it's that he takes these, uh, uses his tone rows, not in the sense of of Schoenberg, but in the sense of using melodic rows and melodic gems. That's how he does it. But there's other composers. We have lots of them. We got quite a few women composers. Chen Yi, uh, born in 1953. Very good composer, born in China, now working here. Amy Beach, she died in 1944, but an early uh, uh, woman composer who was working from 1867 to 1944, wrote songs and worked in churches and stuff like that. Elaine Barkin, no relation to the actress, born in 32. Eve Belglarian, uh, born in 1953. I know Eve. I talked to her. She's a Facebook friend and a very good composer. In fact, let's see if we can hear something from Eve.
That's interesting. Ever since Schoenberg wrote five pieces for orchestra, and the first piece of the thing was all on G, and the idea is that it's the dawning and uh, sunrises, but a lot of people have composed that, stuck these pieces that way, uh, dawn, this whole awakening, this idea, but it's uh, but was initiated, uh, initially done by Schoenberg. So they're kind of copying what he did in a style, but still, Eve's music is good. She's a, a good composer. Uh, let's see if we can find another woman composer. Let's say uh, Jennifer Higdon. Uh, she's was born in 62, uh, actively working, and writes lots of music. And she's won some really great awards. She's won for her violin concerto. She won the Pulitzer 2010. And she won a Grammy in 2009 for Best New uh, Composition, composition uh, for her piano, or percussion concerto, not piano concerto, percussion concerto, uh, and let's hear what those sound like. Or let's hear, well, let's hear first if we can find the percussion concerto. I've got it in my archives here somewhere. Okay, all in all, nice stuff. It's, it's something approachable. I mean, our uh, um, orchestra could certainly do that. Here's a piece by Alex Shapiro, <clears throat> who we actually had up here and had a piece performed, a chamber piece of hers. And this is performed by a high school orchestra. It's called Tight Squeeze. also Laura Schwendinger and she was also born in 62 and uh, this is a piece for cello and orchestra it's a, a excerpt from the middle of a piece but you'll enjoy it <laughs>
right, certainly something our orchestra can do. Now, it's interesting because this is a, a contemporary female composer. This is written in uh, 2012, and um, uh, she won a prize for this, a big prize of Berlin. It's called the Berlin Prize. It's very good. Is it far thinking? Is it forward thinking? Not necessarily, but it, does it need to be? What are we doing with, the, with music here? What, what needs to be done with music? Music of women composers, and I could play lots of them. There are probably 100 working right now that are well-known and, and others that are not. It's well-crafted, generally, very accessible. Our little orchestra would be well-served to play some of these uh, pieces, some of these women. We don't find in general, though, music ideas that challenge or expand musical horizons at all. I don't know why it is. But, and I don't even know if that's important. Uh, maybe, maybe all the experimental things that we did, the Schoenberg, all the abstractions that, that people are doing, and the search for new sounds, forms, music that stretches your ability to make musical sense out of a work of music. I mean, sometimes the things are very difficult to listen to, especially on first hearing. You might not even get any of it. And a search to expand the nature and perception of music is a fool's game. Maybe we're all been playing for the past hundred and so years. We've been playing a, a, a fool's game. Maybe we should just write tonal music, nice uh, tonal music that people can like and listen to and, and win prizes and do these things. Maybe the expansion of tonality into atonality is maybe it's just a blip. Maybe it's just a historical blip. And in, in music of the future, they'll look on this as a, as a degeneration of a sick age. You know, the burnout of the free-thinking Western culture if we go into some kind of a totalitarian system and where free-thinking is denied. Maybe this, uh, all this experimental and free-thinking music will be uh, considered an aberration, something horrible, and uh, people would, would not approach it or even, even think about it because it's not uh, uh, this totalitarian idea of music. It has been the case of composers who write acerbic, difficult-to-approach pieces mellowed as they grew older. And I can give you a very good example. Bartok, at early on, wrote some string quartets, and one of them, the fourth string quartet, it's very difficult and very interesting to listen to, but it's very difficult. So let's hear what that sounds like. I'm going to skip to the last movement here, which is a little more interesting. I said more interesting. It's not more interesting necessarily, but it's more challenging. And um, and as he grew older, as he was in, living in the States and um, 
uh, wrote here. He wrote uh, this. much more tame rhythmically and harmonically. So people tend to, well, there was, a, there was a couple of reasons for this. I mean, he might have continued going further out and further out and further out, but even Pendereski, remember, uh, Christoph Pendereski wrote this uh, 8 minutes, 37 seconds, which we now know as a threnody for victims of Hiroshima back in 1960. But most of his life then, after that, he became a film composer, and, and he also had an epiphany with the Catholic Church. You heard my Pendereski show. And his music is very approachable. It's, uh, it's very tonally centered and, and very approachable. So maybe this experimental stuff and all this abstraction is just an abstraction. Maybe we should be listening... Uh, shouldn't be listening to it. Maybe we should only be listening to uh, composers who write nice works we can listen to and, and just uh, not grow and, you know, eventually decay, decay and that will be the end of it. So, But financial success evaded uh, poor Bartok. He had a very tough life. His, now his works are considered part of the standard repertory. And this is why I say you've got to support composers. He died in New York, he was penniless. Uh, Serge Kustavetsky kept him alive for a number of years, as did uh, Pierre, not Pierre Belez, but uh, Leonard Bernstein actually gave him some money and helped him out. But this is a guy, I mean, this is a tremendous guy. He wrote all this music. He was really the first musicologist. He went up into the hills of Hungary way before anybody was doing with a little uh, wire recorder uh, thing, and he recorded all this Hungarian folk music. We wouldn't even have the whole uh, school and the whole area of study called ethnomusicology without this guy. Uh, he basically started. He said, this is this important stuff. We've got to record it and make a history and, and find the history of this uh, gypsy music and Hungarian folk music is how he started. He died penniless in New York in a small uh, apartment. Unrecognized, forgotten genius. And, you know, they were just knocking on his door asking for rent. And uh, I mean, people tried to help him, but it just it got to a point where Kusuzovitsky you know, passed away and they didn't, couldn't do anything. The foundation just overlooked this guy for some reason. And many female composers faced the same kind of thing in a, a similar way. Uh, Bartok w had fallen out of favor because he wasn't considered academically avant-garde anymore. 
And there's many of these uh, women composers fall into that same uh, boat. We, we've heard some nice sounding pieces from some women composers. And yet, some of them are completely overlooked by a lot of orchestras. They win prizes, they'll get one or two performances, which is kind of the fate of most composers. Times are different now. Women composers receive awards, they get well-crafted music, and they get their stuff pl played. You know, there is this uh, uh, kind of a inquisitiveness about what they're doing. But one wonders how much a, a male composer writing in those same styles would be appreciated. Probably not, because the forces in power are, are now looking to promote women composers. With Ex Indigo, when we first uh, founded it down in L.A., one of the things that we wanted to do was get women composers performed. And we found a lot of them that started coming out of the woodwork. And the works, we did were, these are all choral works, were marginal. Some were very good, some were very poor, but they all tended to be very similar. Tonally uninteresting, not uninteresting, but totally tame, and, um, and all in, in the same line. Even a composer like Chen Yi, we did a, 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 a choral work of hers. Now, this isn't that recording, but this is what the work sounds like. Nice stuff and evocative. It's an evocative sound. Uh, she's a very good kind of composer. You know, Pierre Boulez, we don't know where music is going. We don't know what is going to be in the future. We, we don't. We, we, to deny contemporary music is to deny the present and to deny the future. Uh, I don't care what kind of music it is. I don't care if you like it, but it's a, it's, it drives you crazy or it doesn't drive you crazy. Be in the present. We have to live in the present. We can't live in the past. We don't wear Neapolitan shoes anymore, and we don't wear uh, three-cornered hats, and we don't wear uh, Renaissance clothes, and we don't live like that. Uh, we are a different uh, world now. You know, Pierre Boulez <clears throat> was asked one time if he would like to know with certainty what uh, the next big thing was going to be in music. And Boulez well, Boulez was a funny guy because he thought no other composer other than himself was writing anything worthwhile. And uh, he said, look, it doesn't matter if I knew what style was going to be the next hot thing or the next big style, I would try to write something completely the opposite of it. I would try to do something that wasn't going to be the next big thing. I would try to do something off. And, uh, you know, he was kind of a contrarian in a way. But he was absolutely convinced that his music would still be heard in 100 or 200 years and, and uh, that uh, composers would study and emulate his style and musical direction. Let's hear if his stuff would be suitable for our little orchestra here.
not much mellowing with Boulez. It's still uh, pretty abstract in some ways. This is called Explosant Fixie. As he wrote four pieces, this was uh, in, in 72, and then he rewrote all these uh, just before he died. So he was later when he performed this. This is what, with the uh, 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 Ensemble Intercontemporain, which he actually founded in Paris. So we're probably not going to do Boulez. I mean, uh, regardless, uh, even if we, he was, we did every other note, it would be a difficult uh, task. We have good players, but this would take some real dedication to work into and some real understanding of what the style is. Then we have the minimalist. We've got the minimalist. Remember, the minimalist had started back in the 1960s, right? So this is 1972. This is right when um, uh, Terry Riley has, has put the put the beat to minimalism. Lamont Young had started stuff, but 64, Terry Riley did his uh, his first experiments with NC. That's when when NC came out. The minimalism was well on its way. This is 72. This is what Boulez thinks is going to happen here. Let's see if I can find a, this is what Boulez was doing in 72. Let's see if I can find a woman composer doing something comparable. Now it's difficult because there weren't many women composers known in 72 or working in 72 like there are now. So, but I might have to get close, but uh, uh, we can try uh, Ellen Zwillich because she's been around for quite a while and has done some quite interesting stuff. So let's listen to what her Symphony One sounds like. Hardly comparable. Nice music, but you can't compare it. The abstraction in Boulez, even later, is much different than that of Zwillig. Now, what Zwillig does remind me, though, is of film music. So listen to this. this is Bernard Herrmann. This is from his Symphony 1941. See if you hear any small little similarities. Okay, not an exact copy, but enough harmonic similarity to find some uh, similar things in there. Uh, and um, uh, this was written in, in uh, 1941. Of course, Bernard Herrmann died in 75. 
And I think his music influenced a lot of what contemporary music does. In fact, there's a lot of repetition, a lot of things that I think were influenced. Uh, his early stuff influenced uh, a lot of the minimalists. Well, we'll never know. They would never admit to it. At any rate, as Willich's thing was written in, in, in the 80s. I tried to find a, a representative work from a woman composer working in the 70s, but I couldn't find one that would that would be equal, even close. Willich is is an extremely proficient and a very good composer. So music does change over time, okay? In, in light of the new tonalities, if you think about it, and uh, when minimalism started, when they started bringing in Asian music, a lot of Indian music and stuff like that, the ton idea of tonality changed. So we have music started in the, in the 60s that is embracing this new tonality and the new aesthetic with all this Indian music and Asian music and stuff like that. Oh, I've talked to Boulez both uh, at Betty's and uh, uh, Betty Freeman's and on the phone. And I can tell you, he would have had absolute contempt and he had total contempt of the minimalists. He didn't think they were worth anything and didn't, weren't doing anything interesting. But is... Boulez's music, not only abstract, because it is, but is it intellectually and conceptually profound enough to attract followers? Now, we can look at, at the stuff that uh, uh, some of these uh, women composers are doing, and we wonder, is there, are there schools? I, I don't know of any kind of underground female movement of composers that are, that are following one another. They don't tend to do that. They don't... The, the women composers that I have met, and uh, there have been quite a few of them, uh, from Joyce Metcalf the, through I've met Zwillich and met uh, other people. So, the, but they don't tend to be groundbreakers in a, in a very real sense of the word. They're not out looking to break new ground or compose new things, they, they, but they're incredibly good craftspeople. I mean, they can craft as well as anybody. I mean, there's no difference. It no, doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. However, if we're talking about innovation and expanding the ear, we don't seem to find that in women composers. We don't find it in most men composers. I mean, it's not just, it's not women. This isn't a condemnation of women. We don't find that really expansion of, of what you're hearing and developing new ideas in schools. We don't seem to find that. Now, that's not to say it won't happen in the future or that one of the, the uh, historically, as we look back, some of the stuff that these women composers are doing is actually will enter the mainstream and stay with our, our music and be performed. And much of the stuff that uh, these guys are doing, like Varez and, and uh, John Cage and things like that, will be sidelines. They might be looked at for the idea of the concept, but we don't know. We, don't, we really don't know where Boulez is going to stand. We know as, as a conductor, he's going to be around for a long, long time because he is a really wonderful conductor. And he was a very good composer. There's nothing wrong with his works at all. They're, they're a little difficult to listen to and things, but he is a really good composer. Arthur, author, uh, Joan Pizer, wrote a biography about uh, Boulez. Uh, and in, oh, it's called Boulez. And in over one-third of the book... All she does is make a comparison between Pierre Boulez and this composer.
Stockhausen took music into such a realm of abstraction in the sense that uh, many people called it just organized noise. But as Pizer notes in Boulez, uh, that Boulez was a champion of the new ideas. He always was a champion of new technical expansion. And he was fond of introducing new, previous, unheard elements in his works. I mean, we heard his stuff from the 70s. Unfortunately, Stockhausen beat him at every turn. All of the innovations uh, premiered by Boulez, and there were oh, quite a few that he thought were new, were actually used some 10 years earlier by Stockhausen. This is a piece we heard an excerpt from this piece called Gruppen for three orchestras. So for all of his, uh, but for all of Stockhausen's innovation, I mean, and, and, and Stockhausen really went the limits with everything, his works are rarely performed. The, there's no real chamber pieces of Stockhausen. He has some that he wrote for his son, but, but not many. Um, he even had a work called Sternklang, which is Star Sounds, and it takes place over several hours. I performed it once. Uh, it was commissioned by the Shah of Iran, and uh, it, it, uh, it, it has all different parts to it, so you can't listen to one part and understand it. What you do is you, you're supposed to move around. It says set outside in parks towards dusk, and you travel from park to park, and you hear the whole piece play out as the sun is setting and the stars are coming out. Star sounds, right? So that's where we are with that. With that uh, Abstraction, but not necessarily abstraction that's designed for the symphonic hall. This is supposed to be like almost ambient music, you know, like Brian Eno did that ambient music stuff. Where are we going? What can our little orchestra do here to promote new music? If they were going to promote new music, we have all these devices that composers have used. We have polymodality, polytonality. We have regular tonality. We have people that have returned to tonality in the sense of... Uh, of uh, almost like it's popular music, and we have people that are still doing abstractions. Whereas there's plenty of things to choose from, but they won't do it. Now, why is that? Why is it that the orchestra is so uh, adverse to looking at and performing contemporary musicians? So there are smaller orchestras and community orchestras in Oregon. Uh, there's some out in Minnesota. There's in other places in small towns you would never imagine that are doing these things. Sacramento has a little orchestra that's doing stuff. We have a new director in town uh, for the opera, Brian Alhadep. He wants to do some contemporary things, not, not necessarily brand new, but more contemporary. He wants to try to stretch people's ear and do something more interesting. We'll see what he does with Aida here. That's pretty, pretty straightforward, but that's the opera. He's got to do what the, what the opera wants. But he's also branching out and trying to get other composing opportunities, and that's important. Now, now, uh, Mike is a really good conductor. I mean, he's, he's certainly wet his teeth. He does his Hollywood movies and things like that. And uh, he can play. He's a wonderful player. But, he, you know, he, I, even if he wanted to do contemporary music and, and had a passion for it, which I don't think he necessarily does, I think that he could certainly fight for it, and I don't know if he'd find a sympathetic ear anywhere. Maybe mine, but I don't know if he would find any board directors to be sympathetic. So we looked at some new stuff, and there's new tonality, there's new things out there, uh, and we can stage these things. Uh, when I did Ex Indigo, uh, Paul Sievertson played a violin phase piece of Phil Glass, and it was well-received, and people liked it. Uh, we had some other contemporary things done here, and, uh, and everybody I brought up, and I brought the California Ear Unit up here. I brought, brought people in from all over the place, very meager audiences. 
even with good advertising. It's because our school has got its head stuck I don't know where. It's certainly not in the 20th century because we're not teaching contemporary techniques there. We're not teaching almost anything. There's no contemporary music program as far as I can tell at Cal Poly. I don't know what we're trying to turn out. I don't know what their end product they want. I don't know what they're trying to produce. I haven't talked to them. Uh, when when uh, Cliff Swanson was there, he said, oh, well, we did this contemporary stuff and we don't want to do it anymore and whatever. That was Cliff Swanson. We have a new uh, director, a dean of the school now. Uh, but, but, you know, Cal State Northridge for a while there, back in the 70s, uh, late 60s and 70s, was an absolute lodestone. We had a music director of the music program called Clarence Wiggins, and he really had some foresight. He made everybody mad, but that's okay. That's what he's supposed to do. He's, a, he's the administrator. But he had an idea that we should be doing new music. We should be doing contemporary things. Composers actually had a chance there to, to get some works done and things like that. Now, we weren't Indiana. We didn't have a composer's orchestra, which they do at Indiana. We, at Juilliard, you have to do contemporary works by composers so they can get their thing. You have to, at, when at school, when I was at school, you had to go beg musicians to play your pieces. And a lot of them said, well, I'm a musician. You better pay me if I'm going to learn your piece. So it, was, it got to be problematic because unless you had lots of money, how do you get your piece performed? You've got to go beg everybody in you. And sometimes people would find your stuff interesting and, and, and play along with it. I had several who thought, thought my stuff was really good and they liked to perform it. Other people didn't want to have anything to do with it. But that's the way things are. You, know? you, can't, you can't satisfy everybody. But not for want of trying. When you put your head in the sand and say, this is all we're going to do and let's just satisfy the audience and we're just going to drive ticket sales and we're going to play works that everybody knows and we're not going to challenge anybody, you run the risk of becoming inconsequential. And that's not our orchestra, it's any group is like that. Who cares? So you pay for friends and family and a few people in the society. What difference does that make? You're not making any musical difference anywhere and you're having some fun. Well. If music is only a recreation for you, then that's okay. Then what difference does it make what kind of music you play? If music is just a recreation, Mozart is the same as the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or sitting around on these drumming people that drum for hours. There's no difference. If music is nothing more than recreation and we just want to go out and have a good time and we want to drink our wine and, and socialize and show everybody that we're, so we're cultured, that's recreation, that isn't music. Music exists and music is vibrant when a society exists that appreciates things that are different and likes new things, regardless of their quality. They might, might, it might last, it might not last. It's interesting in music. Things that are readily appreciated and easy to the ear tend not to last historically. They tend to die out. Those composers who challenged what people thought about music and hearing were the ones that seemed to last. Nicholas Sanimsky, namesake of my son, wrote a book called The Lexicon of Musical Invective. And in that book, he wrote about all the different reviews that composers have gotten over the years. And the stuff that we love and know as wonderful music now got some very harsh reviews when the, when it was first done. People called them, some of these composers, idiots and fools and with no ears. So, support new music. So the new idioms are here, they're all around us, and we can appreciate them and play them.
This is Ted Peterson. This is Musical Explorations. Next week, I'm going to do an hour-long show and an interview with American, uh, Cuban-American composer Aurelio de la Vega.